Well, turn with me to the Song of Solomon, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 12. Song of Solomon 6, 4 through 12. And I think it'd be useful to just take a little side note here briefly and remind all of us that hey, there, there are even theologians that say, oh, God would never put a book on marriage in the Bible. That's too lowly. That's too uh, beneath him. We talk about Christ and the cross and all those lofty things. But part of the lofty things of God is obeying him and obeying him in all of the, the beauty of the things that he's given us in this world. He's given us work to do. And so we have commands about work. He's given us children. So we have commands about children. And he's given us the, the incredible gift of human marriage. And it is something worth pursuing as those who love Christ. But it's also the primary picture that he gives us. It's a lifetime picture of Christ in the church. So it's to God's glory for us to make this picture as accurate as possible, isn't it? And so for those who say, well, God wouldn't possibly put a, a book about marriage only in the Bible, I would say actually it's the other way around. Of course he would. Of course he would. It's that important. It's the first institution that he gave us. And so by studying the, the uh, various intricacies of marriage and even the intimacy involved in the marital bedroom, that's, that's not something that is unbiblical or something that is less than holy. It's absolutely holy. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 13 says to keep the marriage bed holy. It is something that God has made. And so it is to our benefit to obey the Lord and to understand how he designed marriage. And so this is not something lower. This is not something less holy. It is part of being a Christian. Now, just backing up to get us to the point we are here, we started in Song of Solomon with the budding romance of Solomon and the, the woman that chapter 6, verse 13 calls the Shulamite, but may be understood as a proper name, Shulamith, the same Hebrew word, word, root rather as Solomon. We saw the beginning of their romance, these two young people who had grown up together in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw them working through doubts and fears, and then their love grew very, very warm. And ultimately, Shulamith had to put the shoe in Shulamith by telling him, get away, because their love was growing, their desire was growing, and so they were being careful. In chapter 3, we saw Shulamith's first dream, revealing her fear of losing Solomon, but also confirming in her own heart that she was ready to marry him despite the incredibly daunting obstacle of his status as king and the political marriages that were part of his life. We saw the wedding procession in chapter 3 when Solomon, having received word of Shulamith's readiness to marry, sent his royal carriage, his litter carried by servants to pick her up from southern Lebanon and to bring her to Jerusalem to be wed to Solomon. We saw the glory of their wedding night in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we join Shulamith in a second dream, again with the theme of fear of losing Solomon. But this time, it was due to her own apathy after some years of marriage. This is when they've been married for a while. But she awakens from the dream. She is well warned of apathy to find that Solomon is, in fact, in the bed with her. He hasn't gone anywhere. But although it's a dream sequence, the caution and the warning of marital apathy was clear. We spent two Sunday evenings on that topic. 
but now they're together. And having had the thrill of initial romance, the joy of the victory of marriage, having gone through the pain and difficulty of apathy in marriage, at least in the dream sequence, we reach a section in which really the rest of the poem explores the deepening of their love, the deepening of the love of Solomon and Shulamith. And what we're going to see is that in reality, this stage of their marriage is actually fuller, it's richer, it's actually more passionate than ever before. But there's a depth to it that you don't even see earlier in the poem. There's a tremendous example for us here, and it gives a lot of hope to those who believe the world's lie, that your marriage is doomed, that your marriage is destined to just settle into something less than where it began. Or if I could put it in musical terms, our culture tells us that your married life is a, is a decrescendo, a softening, that things just kind of peter out after a while. According to Song of Solomon, it is a crescendo that while the passion of love at a honeymoon is glorious and there's a newness to it, the passion and the desire of the marriage actually grows. In fact, for the rest of the book, we're going to see some topics such as love rekindled. We're going to see the response to love rekindled, the strength of growing love. And the last message in the book, the proper progression of love. And we'll track the whole progression of, of marital love. But tonight, to begin this final major section of Song of Solomon, we're going to explore the maturing of love. This is really one big crescendo in their love, in their marriage. Eventually, they're going to be going out to the country together to have some private time, some private marriage time. And this really occupies the rest of the book. And we spend quite a bit of time all the way to chapter 7, verse 11, preparing for that. This is, this is working up to that uh, weekend away, as we might say. And so we're going to look at the maturing of love. Now, I, I was a little bit hesitant picking that phrase. Because when I say the maturing of love, I'm not talking about love that is mature like this. We've settled into a nice routine in life. We know each other. We're comfortable around each other. We're like two old hound dogs that just fall asleep on the front porch. That's not what I'm talking about, maturing love. Maybe other phrases I could have chosen would be blossoming love, exciting love. How about this one? Embarrassing love. What do I mean by embarrassing love? That's the type of love that makes adult children queasy because they can't picture mom and dad still that excited to be around each other. Now, if you thought that maybe the most uncomfortable parts of Song of Solomon were behind us in the honeymoon scene in chapter 4, that's not the case. What we're going to see simultaneously is a depth of non-sexual expression toward each other and an increase in depth of sexual expression toward each other. Both increase. Solomon and Shulamith are so passionate for one another that this is really where, uh, from here on out in the book, preaching becomes an exercise in judiciousness in care. But what is so, so very encouraging about this section and about our text tonight in particular is that it really presents some concrete strategies for purposefully maturing your love, for blossoming your love, for getting your love to that embarrassing stage where your adult kids don't want to see it. They don't want to hear about it. And so to keep this as simple as, as I can, I want to give you three strategies for maturing love in a long-standing marriage. The first two have to do with the husband, and the last one has to do with the wife. Three strategies for maturing love in a long-standing marriage. The first strategy for maturing love, 
We'll simply label this one a husband's praise. A husband's praise. Chapter 6, verse 4, and I'll read through verse 7. This is Solomon speaking. And he says to her, You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Now, if that sounds familiar, you would be correct. Is it just that Solomon had one good speech and he's using it for the rest of their marriage? That's not a bad strategy, I suppose. But you're right to think this is familiar. It's the same elements of the speech that Solomon gave in his description of Shulamith on their wedding night. And for the purpose of comparison, let's review that together. Look with me at chapter 4. This is some years earlier on their wedding night. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, you might ask, why the repetition? Isn't this just another scene here in which they're preparing to be intimate? Actually, at this moment, it's not. Not even close to that. This is something important. This is something foundational. This is something preparatory happening long before. And yes, there are definitely similarities. You can hear them, but the differences are the key. There's three key differences between the second speech years later and the first one that he gave there we just read in chapter four. Three major differences. The first one, he makes no mention in this second speech of her lips and mouth. That would be a decidedly sensual and sexual reference. He doesn't mention that. And secondly, he makes no mention of her neck and her breasts. Again, a more obvious sensual and sexual reference. And finally, he says nothing about his desire for intimacy with her. Those are three very big differences. Now, why is this so important? This is not merely a description of what he finds attractive in her. It is a pointedly non-sexual description of what he finds attractive in her. In other words, he's praising her character, her strengths, the things he loves about her. As a person, as a human being, as a woman. And yes, there are physical references here, but the, the leaving out of those three major intimate references tells us that he's, he's thinking more of her as a person. And in fact, he says something here that indicates his high praise of Shulamith as his companion, as his favorite person ever. He compares her in verse 4 to two cities, Terza and Jerusalem. The first city, the city of Terza, 
It was a city in northern Israel. It's a stunningly beautiful place. In fact, the name Terza means beauty. It means or beauty or pleasure. It's a place of tranquility. I looked at a picture of Terza this week. I was going to show it to you. We don't have it. Okay, I never ask you to do this. Look back. There's a picture. And I'll describe it to you. In the foreground is the former city, but you can't see it. But there are farms, there are farmhouses, there are lakes, there are vineyards, there are rolling green hills, and there's a big blue sky. He says, you're like that. It's a place of tranquility, of beauty. And then he compares her to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Solomon's home. It's the place that he grew up. For him to say that she is as lovely as Jerusalem, this is a compliment indeed, because not only is he complimenting her actual beauty, but he's saying, you are like home to me. You're like home to me. Now, you might be saying, wait, that sounds familiar. I feel like we've talked about that. We have. We've already seen it. Remember in chapter 5, verse 15, Shulamith tells Solomon that he is like Lebanon to her, that he's like home to her. So what is Solomon saying when when he says, you're as beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem? He's saying, you are my home. You are my abode. You are my place. I'm at home with you. Some of you have lived in one place your whole life, and so you haven't experienced this. In our family, we've moved a number of times. You know what we found out? Sylvia and I found out as long as we're together, we're home. Doesn't matter where we are. We're always home as long as we're together. Now, what about this odd comment that she's as awesome as an army with banners? You know, for us as men, that kind of sounds like, babe, you're like an M16 to me. (laughs) Well, let's unpack this a little bit. The translation awesome as an army is really based on an assumption that banners are generally associated with the military. But more properly, the text simply says you're as awesome as something with banners. You're as awesome as something with banners. Well, what's the obvious something here? Terza and Jerusalem. Just like the picture of these two cities with, the, uh, with picture, picture them with their beautiful walls and flags and banners. This is a sign of peace. This is a sign of joy and glory. She's something festive. It's the idea of these, these flying flags that are so delightful, so celebratory. How do all of the... Uh, uh, housing developers in town get you to go by. What do they put up? Flags, banners. And you say, ooh, something's happening over there. And they, they all have their different colors. You almost know which company it is by which color flag. That's what he says. You're festive. You're like these beautiful cities that are at peace and joy and flying these flags with festivals and delight and joy. And in fact, we get even more information about what's really happening here in verse 5. He says in verse 5, Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. What do we know so far? First of all, he's not trying to be sexual. He's being complimentary. He's expressing his love. And second, we see that he's overcome by her gaze. But in context here, it's not in a sexual manner. It's just simply the intensity of his love for her. His love for her is so overwhelming that he says, I, I can't even look you in the eyes. It's overwhelming my heart. Where is this intense love for her coming? Where's it coming from? 
We could actually think about a New Testament verse, one we've mentioned numbers of times in Song of Solomon, to tell us where this intense love for her is coming. Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where is this intense love for her coming? It is expressed in his praise to her. It's coming from his thoughts. It's coming from what he chooses to think. His intentional, self-directed choices of thoughts toward her. His intense love for her is coming from a purposeful appreciation of Shulamith. And when he says, turn away your eyes from me, he's overwhelmed by the positivity of their love together. None of us have by any means mastered this discipline in the quest for Christ-likeness. But the fact remains that the thoughts you choose to think will determine how you respond. We all get that. We all understand that. It will tenderize your heart towards your spouse. And men, as much as I hate to point this out to you, you notice that Solomon is working at using eloquent words to reach the heart of his wife. That it takes words. Words are important. And you might say, I haven't written an essay since eighth grade. Well, if you aren't eloquent naturally, then write something down and read it to your wife. Do like Solomon. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Read the same speech if you have to. But don't have that horrible attitude of I told you I loved you once and I'll let you know if that changes. Instead, use words. All of us need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. Our wives need words. They're important. In fact, we can tell that he's appreciating and praising her without reference to sexuality at all because in the very next sentences, he refers to subjects that no man brings up in an intimate setting, other women and his mother-in-law. Those two things are coming up next. Nobody mentions that if you're thinking sexually. So the first strategy for maturing love, a husband's praise. The second strategy, a husband's assurance. To give her assurance. Here come the other women and his mother-in-law. Verse 8. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Now normally you wouldn't open a speech to your wife with that phrase. I, I don't think that's a good idea. But what's he saying here? Verse 9, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. He gives two evidences of his love for her. He gives assurance from from two different sources. First of all, the first evidence, you recall that Solomon is in this horrible situation. It's the first of all of his father's making, but ultimately of his own choosing, And that is to be in these endless political marriages and concubine relationships, very likely as favors to foreign leaders or even to high-level nobles in Israel. And there's a lineup of hopeful women, virgins without number, he says. But what is Solomon saying? In verse 9, he's saying, you are the only one. And he gives this illustration that since Shulamith was apparently the only daughter in her, in her family, the only one of her mother, he says, you are as special to me as you have been to your mother, as if she's the only one. 
Now again, we can't possibly imagine what Solomon and Shulamith faced in this ancient Near Eastern practice of royal polygamy. But Solomon does remind us of something. Frankly, we live in a culture in which men are surrounded by women and often by women who act immodestly and act sensuously. And our culture encourages that. Our culture glorifies perfect bodies, unclad bodies, sexualized everything. And so in the very real sense, the challenges are similar. And so for us as husbands, it's so, so important for our wives to know that we only have eyes for her. And that's not based in some sort of legalistic, well, I'm not supposed to know this other women. No, it's based in love. It's based in a total yearning for your one woman. This is why one of the qualifications of an elder is that he's a one woman man, that he is deeply and forever in love with one. But there's a second evidence of his love for her. You ready for this? All of the other women in Solomon's life agree that she's number one. They all agree. I cannot even imagine what that conversation looked like. I wouldn't want to be within 100 miles of it personally. They all agree. She's beautiful. She's a woman of character. Or to put it this way, the queens and concubines can't find anything bad to say about her. Her own character speaks for herself. They can see, they can understand why Solomon is head over heels in love and none of them will ever, ever have that place. And in fact, we have a record of the words of all the other women in Solomon's life. Verse 10, it's put down in a rhetorical question. Speaking of Shulamith, who is this who looks down like the dawn Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners, or awesome as something with banners. They describe Shulamith in almost divine terms, literally heavenly terms, the dawn, the moon, the sun. She's elevated to the highest spot in his heart, and they don't disagree with that. I don't know if Solomon arranged for some sort of meeting where all the other women said, yep, we know you're number one. But he gives assurance. The first strategy for maturing love, a husband's praise. The second strategy, a husband's assurance. And you notice that once again, that involves words. It involves words. And finally, we get to a third strategy for maturing love, and we switch over to the wife now. And that third strategy is a wife's pursuit. A wife's pursuit. Now we return to a theme that we've seen before, the theme of new blossoms in springtime. And this scene is apparently set in the orchards outside of Jerusalem. Verse 11, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Now the last time we saw this theme of springtime and and blossoming was all the way back in chapter 2 when Solomon comes to Shulamith's home in in southern Lebanon, north of Jerusalem, when they had been apart for some time. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he says to her, My beloved speaks and says to me, and this is Solomon speaking, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. She's expressing something similar here in chapter 6. 
that like the orchards in which they're walking, like the vines which are budding, now she's pursuing Solomon. She is pursuing intimate love with him. This is almost a, a teasing, a flirtation. Are the vines in blossom? Will you accept my invitation? In fact, this gets a, a little bit more personal here. In the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, one of the ancient baseline texts upon which we base the modern Hebrew Bible, and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, let me read to you how the verse reads, because there's a small section at the end of the verse that most English translations have chosen to omit, but there's enough evidence to believe that it might have been part of the text. In any case, whether it is or not, A lot of translators believe this helps us understand the mood that she's setting in this verse. Let me read the verse to you from the Masoretic text. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Here's the part that the Masoretic text adds, in that place I will give my breasts to you. So now her intentions are clear. She's talking about going to an actual place with the springtime blossoms, also serving as a picture of her pursuit of him, and she clearly has intimate intentions. Now, how did this happen? How did this happen? Two reasons. This didn't happen in a vacuum. This did not happen in a vacuum. The first reason that this happened is Solomon has already paved the way for her to be freed to have this desire. How did he pave the way? With his words, with praise, and with assurance. He's kind and he's wonderful to her. And the second reason that this happens, that she expresses this tremendous blooming desire, Shulamith has made a conscious choice to have positive, yea, even sexual thoughts toward him. It's a choice she's made. It is a decision. There's an intentionality to this. Now, this is very different, actually, from our classic understanding of romance. Our classic understanding of romance places a woman in a passive position of simply waiting for her man to create some sort of magic, that that's romance. Instead of that, she's creating a little magic of her own, so to speak, by choosing to focus her mind, to choose to focus her attention on moving toward him intimately. And what's the result of her intentional, intimate thoughts towards Solomon Verse 12, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Now, this is generally thought to be perhaps the most difficult verse in the whole poem to grasp. And so I need to unpack it just a little bit. First of all, she says, before I was aware, literally in Hebrew, I do not know my own soul. I I don't know my own, own soul. It has the connotation of I can hardly keep my poise or I'm in a state of heightened joy a little bit out of control even. Because of her state of not being in control of her feelings, she says, my desire set me. Her sexual desire is now essentially in control of the situation. She feels out of control in a sense. And where has her desire set her? Among a bunch of chariots. Now, what does that mean? If we did a little bit more wooden translation, it simply says that she has been set among the chariots of Ami Nadib, or in the chariot of Ami Nadib. This is a proper name. This is a nickname. The nickname says, my beloved is a prince. It's a long nickname. So let's put all that together. Here's what she's saying in verse 12. 
I am in a state of heightened joy and desire, which is making me feel a little out of control. And this desire is transporting my heart to the chariot of my beloved is a prince to be taken away by her love. In fact, chapter 7, verse 11, she gives the invitation, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the vineyards. She's a queen and she's dreaming of being taken away out into the country in the chariot of her husband. And in fact, the next scene of their maturing love almost makes us blush a bit. It's the scene in which Shulamith is dancing for her husband led along by the desire that she's intentionally developed and chosen and fed to her own mind, fed to her own heart. So their love is deepening, it's maturing. I'd like to spend the last few moments giving you four applications and one observation. And I want to spend just a bit on this. Four applications and one observation. It's a beautiful text. First application, maturing love follows pulling out of apathy. Maturing love follows pulling out of apathy. Did you notice that they've gone through trials of their own making? Now we saw in chapter five that her her dream of being apathetic is just that, it's just a dream and it saves her from the embarrassment of having for the last 3,000 years her actual apathy recorded in scripture. But the lesson was very clear to watch out for apathy in marriage, which of course can have a thousand different causes, distraction, worry, children, work, finances, all kinds of things. You blink and 10 years have gone by without so much as a thought toward cherishing and nourishing your marriage. And so I would encourage every couple to talk about those things that encourage apathy or distract you from each other because there are a thousand things trying to tear your marriage apart. There are a thousand things coming against you Maturing love follows pulling out of apathy. So what do you do when you talk about those things that encourage apathy or distract you from each other? Fight back. Fight together all the things that would drive you apart. We've said this before, but at the end of life, which is going to be the last subject we tackle in Song of Solomon, at the end of life, it will be your spouse who's there with you. Not your work, not the distractions, How much time have we ever spent worrying about your electric bill or your gas bill or your mortgage? At the end of life, will you be worrying about those things? I don't think so. You'll be treasuring those moments. And so fight together for those things that would bring you together. There's a second application directly related to what we've talked about already. Husbands, praise your wife like it's the last time. Praise your wife like it's the last time. I have to wonder why it is that gracious and beautiful words of adoration happen at the end of life or worse, after the end of life when there's no chance to say those words. Men, if you say, well, I struggle with coming up with words, you wouldn't struggle if you had 10 more minutes with your wife on this earth. You wouldn't have enough time. There wouldn't be enough words. What would you praise her for? What would you tell her if it was your last time? Men, I dare you to have that conversation to cherish your wife with words and to to take that time to do that. Praise your wife like it's the last time. There's a third application. Similarly, again for husbands, assure your wife of your undying and total devotion. Assure your wife of your undying and total devotion. And some guys have griped to me, "Ah, I I don't feel like I can talk her into believing me. I don't think so. 
Let me ask you this. If Solomon, who had 60 other wives and 80 concubines, successfully convinced Shulamith of his undying devotion to her, it's easy for us. That guy's a genius. However, he did that. And so, what does this mean? Let me give you a very practical application to assuring your wife of your undying and total devotion. Don't have wandering eyes. Don't indulge the idolatrous notion that a three-second look won't hurt anyone. Yes, it does. It makes your love for your wife a lie. It's a lie. And she won't believe your words because your eyes told the truth. Just like the song says, I only have eyes for you. Assure your wife of your undying and total devotion. You know, it's ironic to me. I've seen couples that look like they crawled off the cover of a magazine they're just so physically attractive. And this man, a man can't keep his eyes off every other woman on planet Earth. And I've also seen couples that have been married 60 and 65 years gaze at each other with an intensity that only they can understand. They have eyes for no one else. I'll give you a fourth application. Wives, intentionally craft your thoughts toward affection intentionally craft your thoughts toward affection if you wait for your husband to get everything right or to be perfected in other Christ-likeness or for everything in your life to be going just so you're going to blink and realize that your love for him has grown cold and worse, he'll know it. He'll know it. Very simply, give him a reason to be eager to come home. Craft your thoughts in advance intentionally seek him out. And as we'll see in chapter 7, Shulamith seeks him out likely without using very many words at all. And the words she does use are provocative. This isn't, well, I suppose I'll work you into my schedule if I have to. <sighs> well, sorry about that. No, it's, it's purposeful. By the way, I want you to notice something. Generally speaking, we, we, we have a, a notion, and I think we all understand this, that men are not as good with words. Generally speaking, it's a broad paradigm. We understand that. And generally speaking, women are better with words and maybe use more words. What's the pattern in Song of Solomon? Men need to use more words and Shulamith uses fewer words. Those are the four applications. And I'd like to give you one observation. And this is really the bottom line to maturing love. This is what it's all about. Here's my observation. Both Solomon and Shulamith love the other the way God designed them to be loved. Both Solomon and Shulamith love the other the way God designed them to be loved. In 1992, Dr. Gary Chapman wrote a book that changed the landscape of marriage counseling called The Five Love Languages, the secret to love that lasts. This was heralded as one of the greatest breakthroughs in marriage counseling, that if a couple will simply understand one another and and love each other the way the other desires to be loved, they will have a happy marriage. There's a lot of truth to that. Some have found it helpful. But Chapman's book was not by any stretch some sort of great breakthrough. It wasn't. Song of Solomon, chapter 6. A husband praising and giving security to his wife with words of love and kindness and affection. A wife demonstrating her love with proactive, intentional affection. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in what? An understanding way. 
Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5, wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. Titus chapter 2, wives, be at home and be a philandros, a lover to your husband. Five Love Languages, published in 1992, potentially helpful. Song of Solomon, published 1000 BC, the living, inerrant word of God. The New Testament, completed 95 AD, the living, inerrant word of God. It's not that you love the other the way they desire to be loved. That's a little bit selfish. You love the other the way God created them to be loved. That's the secret. It's not a great secret. Gary Chapman just happened to market some biblical truth in a way that sounds like it's brand new. And as believers in Christ, you have three tools at your disposal. The first tool you have is your motivation to please Christ. Your motivation to please Christ, this is your primary focus, the moving force in your marriage. Your marriage is a means by which you demonstrate your salvation. It's a means by which you demonstrate your love for Christ. The second tool you have at your disposal, you have the word of God. You have the word of God. This is truth which saturates your heart. You pour these truths in your heart over and over and you are more apt to live them. And I wonder how many couples believe that somehow the residual effect of merely passively listening to a sermon will do all the work for you. I can't do the work for you. I give you the truth and the Bible gives you the truth. Instead, the word should be like an IV drip into your marriage. It's just constantly nourishing you, constantly changing your mind, changing your heart. You have your motivation to please Christ. You have the word of God. And the third tool you have at your disposal, you have the spirit of God. You have the spirit of God who humbly, who gives you the power rather to humbly seek your marriage. You have the fruit of the spirit as promised and given to every single believer. You have the power. You have the ability to humble yourself, to confess sin, to try harder, to live unconditionally, to make tomorrow the best day your marriage has ever had. You have that power. And I should point out that I I feel like that the roadmap of marriage that we've seen in Song of Solomon is very similar to how our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes goes. You start with great excitement and joy. Salvation is brand new. Redemption is fresh. Then if you aren't careful and you don't nourish your walk with Christ, you become apathetic. You settle for a a Christian-like routine, still coasting on some great spiritual growth a number of years ago. But the invitation is clear from the Lord to move to mature love, to reignite your fervor and your delight in the Lord. Instead of telling stories about that one year you read the whole Bible back in the 80s, make a new story of what you're doing tomorrow. Instead of fondly remembering some great prayer times you had some years ago, seek the Lord with every possible moment now. Do you see the similarities? If you pursue the Lord... You pursue your marriage, do it in the same way. Then you're accomplishing both. I spoke to a dear sister in the Lord this week. Spoke with her and her husband. She doesn't live in our area of the country. She and her husband have crossed paths with me a number of times over the past 10 years or so. And she's desperately sick. In all likelihood, she may not live even two more weeks. She asked me if I had time to talk, and I said, I, I think I have more time than you do, so we'll, we'll just talk. And we had a wonderful talk, first with her husband, then with her. 
Their marriage is precious to them. They love each other. They serve one another every moment possible. And to talk to her, Christ is as real to her as if he were sitting in the room with her. The word of God is a flame in her heart. Heaven is just days or weeks away for her and she's so excited. But to her credit, it did not take a horrible disease to get her to this point and to get their marriage to this point. She and her husband have sought the Lord together. They've nourished their marriage. They've mortified sin. They've humbly sought to obey the Lord. In other words, her, her disease didn't bring her to that point. Her desire to have a mature love for the Lord brought her to that point, brought their marriage to that point. I don't know if I'm going to get to speak to her again, but I'll never forget this as long as I live. When our conversation was over, she was very cheerful. And she said, well, I'll either talk to you soon or we'll talk again in heaven. Have a great evening. It was that simple for her. As we get closer to the end of Song of Solomon, we're going to hit the theme of eternity more and more and more. And in our final message, I will preach to you about preparing one another for heaven in your marriage as some of your final acts of of joy and service. So I'm going to pray for that eternal perspective for you. And in the meantime, remember, maturing love follows pulling out of apathy. Praise your wife like it's the last time. Assure your wife of your undying total devotion. Wives, intentionally craft your thoughts toward affection. I'd like to close with the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in what? In love. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this text which not only drives us together as married couples, Lord, but even more importantly drives us to the cross and drives us to Christ to think of bigger, more eternal things and to live in our relationships here on earth with eternity in mind. I pray for the marriages in our church, Lord. I know of some that are hurting. I know of some that are that are rocked. I know of some that need help. Lord, I pray you would help them to turn to you, to turn to the power of your word, the motivation to please Christ, the power given by the Holy Spirit. And for all the married couples in our church now, Lord, it is incumbent upon us to be strong at home so that we might be strong as a church, so that we might be strong in the world. And so help us to connect that chain, Lord, of obedience from our homes all the way into the world. I pray for our marriages, Lord. Let them continue to crescendo in love and in joy and in passion and in intensity. I pray for those yet to be married, Lord. I pray they would see the glorious institution of marriage and and seek after that and, and yearn for it and not worry about finding the perfect person because there aren't any but worry about being a Christ-like spouse. And so I pray you would prepare our, our younger folks, Lord, for that. That they too might enter into that joyful union that you have designed for humanity. Let our marriages, Lord, be an accurate reflection of Christ in the church, a picture painted that is true, that is detailed. Love flowing from one to the other in a way that is truly remarkable and is a testimony to the work of grace. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.